Well, I feel lucky because I I remember when it happened, we all wanted to be there. I was out in San Francisco at the time and clear across the country and all of us in the FBI and probably most of us in general felt helpless, like you wanted to do something. We were assigned to the Staten Island landfill, but what we were assigned to in particular is they were putting the debris from the buildings from ground zero on barges and taking them over to the Staten Island landfill, brought it over there. And then we were essentially sorting through, sifting through debris from the World Trade Center and pulling out anything that could identify a victim. Hey guys, this is Coach K and you're listening to the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast where we talk about you. This is about you, your mind, and your path. So as you can see, this is another guest episode. We have Cora back on the podcast, which I'm very, very excited for. And I think all of you guys really enjoyed having Cora on here the first time around. We also have a few other guests that I'm very, very excited to introduce to you all. Laura and Lisa have been married for 10 years and have been together for 16 years. They live here in Bend, Oregon, which is where we all met and became friends. They spend their free time similarly to how we do hiking, skiing, walking around town with their two doodle dogs and and socializing. So I'm very, very excited to have them on the podcast and, you know, just share with you all a little bit more about their lives and some of the awesome things that they've done because they have done a lot of awesome things. So with that being said, I'm just going to give a little bit of a bio for both of them and then we will bring them in and get right to it. So Laura grew up in the foothills of California. She is now a successful website designer here in Bend, and her work adventures have really always focused around the arts and the outdoors. From touring as a singer-songwriter, which I'm really excited to talk about, and to owning a retail sporting goods shop, she's really had her hand in in a lot of things. And then about Lisa... She retired from the FBI in 2019 after serving 24 years as a special agent in both San Francisco and Portland divisions. As a special agent, Lisa worked a variety of violations to include white collar crimes, crimes against children, and counterintelligence. Additionally, Lisa was a member of the FBI's evidence response team, processing major federal crime scenes to include the World Trade Center's Ground Zero following 9-11. And before all of that, Lisa was already a badass because she was a Division I collegiate athlete playing volleyball at the University of Florida, where she earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in exercise physiology. So long story short, Laura and Lisa are totally a power couple, and Cora and I are very grateful to have them in our lives and as friends, and also as role models for what it looks like to be in a healthy relationship as two powerful, successful, and fun-loving women. So, with all that being said, hi, Laura and Lisa. How are you guys? How are you feeling? Doing good. Doing good. We sound so interesting from the intro. (laughs) I want want to know us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't let us down on all the following questions, you guys. (laughs) So, um, just kind of want your guys' input or story on how we met. You know, obviously there's a little bit of an age gap between us, right? One of you's already retired, um, but how that kind of friendship clicked, you know, the things that made sense and kind of why it works for us now as as new friends, but established friends. Well, gosh, we met a couple of years ago now. 
And see, here I go. I'm going to jump in and That's answer okay. every question. Um, <laughs> we met a couple of years ago and uh, through a mutual friend. And she, she was really, she was our real estate agent at the time she was yours. And she just has a way of, of connecting people who she thinks might might get along. So so you guys came over and, and uh, we clicked immediately with you. And, and I think it's, you know, somewhat about just, you know, when you meet normal, authentic people, it's with similar it's interests. with similar interests. It's easy. Dogs in the outdoor. The doodles. Actually, forget all of the rest. It was the doodles. That could be. <laughs> I think that's why we clicked. Yeah. You know what I find interesting too is is we do have so much, so many similar interests. But actually, Cor and I were talking about this the other day. Most of the time when we're getting together, we're getting together over dinner for a dinner party and mm -hmm. a bottle of wine. It's like, what the heck? Why aren't we ever going skiing together or hiking oh. together? Yeah, <laughs> I was actually about that. I was, I, I was going to say that. It's like, oh, well, you meet people who like the outdoors and doing things. It's like, but we never do that. So, <laughs> so we never do it together. But we someday, start. someday we, we will. We, let's make it a priority. Yes. I guess, Lisa, we've gone mountain biking together, and you and Cora have gone mountain biking, so yeah. done that. It was yeah. like a bait and switch. It was right at the beginning, didn't you <laughs> guys was. go mountain biking? Yeah. It was like, yeah, let's go mountain biking, and then now Never let's just again. eat and drink. <laughs> <laughs> I think that those dinner parties are just so much fun, They're and so we all fun. really love talking together so much, so we just keep doing that over and over yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> Laura, I want to first, you know, talk about you and your background a little bit more. So you had this dream of being a singer-songwriter. Is that right? Is that something you kind of always dreamed about as a kid? No. No. Okay. Actually, I, I, so actually how the, how the songwriting thing started was a, a little bit different. How it actually became a career was a little bit different. I started playing music maybe when I was 10. My mom was a, a country western singer. And uh, she taught me how to play guitar. And songwriting was very much just like journaling for me. It just became how I got everything out. So I was writing songs from the times the time I was like maybe 13 through my teenage years, through high school. As I, when I was about a junior in high school, my mom kind of recognized that my songs were good and she thought it would be a good way for me to make some money when I was in college is selling songs. Hmm. And so she brought a recording of me, a little cassette. You guys probably don't know what cassettes are. Oh, stop. <laughs> Just little things. I knew one of these jokes later. was coming. I knew one was coming. <laughs> um, but she brought a cassette to a local studio and they were at that time um, transitioning to become an independent record label. And they immediately said they wanted to sign me as their first artist. So that completely obviously changed the trajectory of what I was planning on doing. I was going to be going to art school. And instead, I started recording my first CD, also something you might not know very, very well. <laughs> but I, okay. <laughs> I um, recorded my first CD and started touring. So that's what I, that's what I did from 17 until I opened Okay, so I was completely wrong. It really wasn't a dream. It was something no. more that fell into your lap almost. Yeah, it was it was say. an opportunity. And that's yeah. you know, that everything in my life it's been just about accepting recognizing and accepting opportunities that come. And so that was an opportunity and it, and for me it was it was kind of an important I I don't think anything happens by accident. 
because I was painfully shy. I know it's hard for you guys to believe, but <laughs> um, going on the road and actually having to get on stage every night and sing to people and also singing your own songs. Some, and sometimes it's wonderful. You're, you're at a festival and singing and, and, and people are listening. And sometimes you're in a little club and nobody's listening. So that sort of experience, I think, actually kind of laid groundwork for being able to do the, the other things that I've done in life. You talked about opportunities. What is it your dad said about opportunities? Just, just always take every yes. opportunity. Pretty much. I think yeah. you kind of hammered like that his, into you. His deathbed yeah. words was just take every opportunity yeah. that comes to life. So yeah, so music was, was uh, that. What, how old were you when you were actually touring? I started tour. I started recording the first album when I was 17. I started touring when I was maybe just before I was 19. And, wow. and then I released two CDs with that label. And then by my mid twenties, by when, when I was 24, I had an opportunity to buy into a sporting goods store that was starting up in, in my hometown. I, that was another opportunity. And at that time, you know, the music business is for someone who is a homebody, who likes to have roots and be home, it's not a great gig because you are gone constantly, you know, late nights. And I was recognizing also it's difficult to make a living. You're making all of your money in the late spring and summer and early fall late fall, winter, early spring, you have no money, no income. So you have to do something else. And um, so I, I was, that was not how I wanted to spend my life. And I don't know that I had, you know, I might've had a gift with, with it, but I, I, did, I don't think I had the, the drive or the determination to make it work. By the end, it was really my record company who, you know, was, kind of pushing pushing the wheel music was always for me you know song songwriting is is for me it still is so you know it actually felt better not doing it uh huh. you know for other people but that's i say that but it was also an incredibly special like five years of my life you know or more because of everything it gave me and, and the confidence it gave me and, you know, le learning about, yeah, I mean, you're kind of thrown in from, you know, high school, you, you, like learning a lot about rejection, learning a lot about successes, learning a lot about people and yourself. So uh, I'm really, really thankful for that whole opportunity. Yeah, you. I feel like you touched on something that's really interesting there in that, you know, someone may think, okay, well, if you're a musician, well, isn't the thing that you would want to do is play in front of hundreds of thousands of people or hundreds of people or whatever. And that may just not always be the case. And it sounds like that's kind of something that you learned about yourself through that process, even though it was, like you said, amazing and something that's really awesome to look back on. But yeah, it was just yeah. kind of knowing when to stop. And I, I think that you're right. I think that a lot, I think a lot of times, the the artists are not necessarily there and this is a huge generalization and and i'm not one to speak for all artists but you know a lot of times particularly songwriters are very introspective and and so it's not an easy thing to go out and put that out for everybody 
and especially with the rejections you get and and I think you know it leads into a whole different conversation but I I think you often see performers turning to alcohol or drugs or things that make that a little easier to handle and it, you know that was never something that I was into but I could see if I had kept going down that road that it pro I probably would have needed some numbing factor. I was actually going to, this kind of leads me into this next question, but I was going to ask about those festivals that you played at. I'm sure that was quite the atmosphere to be a part of. And it was cool. It was, and you know, I started when I, when I started doing music, I was kind of in the folk folk scene and doing small sets at, you know, at some of the folk festivals and playing at the, the small folk clubs, mainly mainly on the West Coast. But, you know, when I um, was, you know, 1920, by the time I had my, started working on my second album, my sexuality had already come into play at that point. And so I made a really deliberate switch and, and started focusing on the women's um, circuit. And again, that's not, you know, not to bring up your age again, but um, <laughs> that's, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. But when I was young, you know, a 20 year old lesbian, particularly growing up in the foothills, there was a very distinct, there was women's music festivals, there were women's clubs. It was a whole circuit because we needed venues where there were like-minded people because you didn't it wasn't something that you just you know I don't want to say we're out with because I was always fairly out but you know it just it, it felt like the right place it felt like home to be in that sort of environment with the women's music festivals so that was fun for me you know I, I did you know again festivals that don't exist national women's music festival camp fest at music festivals in New Mexico, Arizona, California, and and was starting to kind of get a name for myself on that scene, you know, when the opportunity of doing something more stable came up. Why don't we have those festivals anymore? That sounds like a ton of fun. I mean, <laughs> they are fun, but they're just not needed. You know, I don't think they're needed in the same way that they were needed at, at yeah. that time. You know, that was the early 90s. And you, there were just not a lot of safe spaces. I mean, you remember that time. It was like yeah, I mean, they're not needed in the same way. I mean, there aren't a lot of specifically gay bars or things like that anymore because we can't, thankfully, go anywhere. Yeah, we know? can be ourselves anywhere, but you yeah. know, back then, not you so could not be yourself yeah. anywhere. You know, not safely. And 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 actually, in the early '90s, there had been so much progress made from the '80s, mm -hmm. '70s. So you know, I looked at it as I knew a lot of women in when I was touring in the women's music festival scene, we met a lot of the pioneers, women's music, who they, I mean, their experience of being lesbian, so, so different than mine in the 90s. And now, like, not, it's, it's the same. So do you feel like it was hard for you to leave that part of the scene because you had kind of been building and been a part of this community and then you were, you know, leaving it for a more stable opportunity, but was that hard at all and part of your decision? I think that the hardest part of me leaving music was that I loved hearing other women singing singer-songwriters, women and men singer-songwriters. I love other people 
hearing other what other people have to say through music. And that was difficult, just not being a part of that. I, it's You know, it's funny because for the first probably 10 years after I stopped doing music, I didn't miss being on stage. I didn't miss any of I didn't even hardly play music anymore, actually, for, the, you know, for a decade or so after I stopped. But I really didn't miss hearing other people sing and sitting in intimate, like intimate songwriting circles and sharing music, and um, which was one of the reasons we started the house concert series. Lisa, did you ever hear Laura's songs like when you were growing up or anything? Oh, no, no, um, I didn't. No, I mean, I she think... grew up in Texas. Well, <laughs> in Florida, I well, I think the first I became aware of your songs or that you even had songs was after we met. And at that time, I mean, I, she did give me a couple of CDs. It wasn't like now where she wasn't streaming on iTunes, yeah. right? I mean, that wasn't a thing. Um, yeah. So you gave me a couple of CDs yeah. from your early yeah. music. And I wasn't, you know, I was starting to gain some notoriety in on in that circle, but that circle is a small circle. Yeah. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like, you know, it, it wasn't like people knew me over. It was it was a it's very like small today following when artists get a following because on of YouTube. the Internet. Yeah. Right? I mean, social yeah. media. Was it even a thing when you? Oh, God, no, it wasn't. I mean, there no. Was no I mean, it, the or... Internet really started in full force around 94. And yeah, so we were so... just starting to kind of get the word out in in that way with, via the Internet. She but... was having to do it the hard way, you know, word of mouth through people who had heard her going to festivals. Then people would hear her and buy her music. Um, but it wasn't like today. And it'd be interesting to know how it would be. I know it would be actually fun. I, I think be. I think that sometimes when I see a young songwriter, you know, and they put out a video, they get of, exposure. They get now. It's like you can put it out, yeah. and if it gets, you know, if it's something that's worth listening to, it can spread really quickly, and you can get a hundred thousand fans yeah. like this. You know, that wasn't yeah, something it goes viral. You did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, you know, in my day, going viral was like, oh, ten people signed up on my mailing list after a show. <laughs> you know, it's completely right. different. So. I think when we met, I didn't even know that you had been a singer somewhere. No, you, I didn't talk you about worked that. At, um, recording good shop, <laughs> yeah. and I had no idea. Yeah, for a while. Yeah, it was a surprise. Yeah, hopefully a good one. <laughs> it was a pleasant <laughs> surprise. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's definitely some big negatives when it comes to social media, but that that's definitely a positive, right? Someone yeah. can put their their creation, their work, their life's work out there, and it can it spread. Out. It can spread like wildfire very quickly. Right. Obviously, that's not the case for everyone. You have to get a little bit lucky, and, and you also have to be good at what you do, mm -hmm. but um, you do have that possibility, which is, which is really cool. And I, I want to bring it back to our earlier conversation about when we first met, because that very first time we met, which was at your guys' house for that dinner party, you broke out your guitar and you sang a couple songs. And yeah, that with was Tommy. Yeah, with Tommy. And that was the first time we had, you know, ever met you guys and ever heard you sing. And I was blown away. I thought it was awesome to the point where, you know, then I asked you to do a house concert for me for my birthday, <laughs> which you did, which That's was right. really, really awesome. So now Christina's your record label forcing yeah. you to perform. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nice. You know, I can't say that it's not flattering or if when somebody hears my music and likes my music, I, because that's, you know, one of the things about doing music that professionally is your ego gets fed a lot when you're on stage and you're getting that kind of, you know, adoration, even on a small level. That's that's really kind of a cool thing. So that like, you know, not doing 
not doing music. You didn't, I didn't get that anymore. So Christina, you're the first, you know, fan <laughs> I've had since the nineties. So I appreciate it. I love it. Well, and to feed your ego even more, Lindsay and Courtney actually brought this up randomly a couple, maybe a couple weeks ago now. And they were saying that they've listened to your Christmas song that you oh. sent like a bunch of times, even <laughs> since Christmas. And they absolutely love it as well. Oh, so you have a few nice. fans. Nice. That's <laughs> At least good to a know. few fans. Yeah. All right. That's maybe we can get it. Joking. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I, I want to get this going on social media. <laughs> yeah. Here's your I, see a, I see a career change coming. Mm. Well, you're the website designer. Put your website together. I'll exactly. link it on the post. Okay, and there okay. we go. 100,000 yeah. fans by overnight. You're going to sell okay, all those remaining CDs so fast. Yeah. <laughs> I think we do have a box of them. I think we might. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa's been wanting to get rid of those, so that'd be great. I want one. <laughs> we She's might like, what is this box down. still doing in the garage? Exactly. I just can't throw it away. It's myself. Yeah. It's my heart. <laughs> well, just to fast forward a, a few years here, you obviously now own your own business and design websites for people here in Bend, but also people everywhere, right? It's not mm -hmm. just people in Bend, right? Yeah, no, it's it's everywhere. Yeah. It's so, nice, though. I really value the, the Bend, you know, where it, whenever I've lived in a, a community that I've had the website business, I love working with people in that community. So when I was in the foothills, it, I loved my local clients. I love them in, in the Bay Area when I was there and I love them in Bend. I love to see that growing. Yeah. So how did you get into website design? I mean, that I know that there was an in-between step there from singer-songwriting to this, but... Well, I had... So the sporting goods store was actually a pretty big in-between step there because I did that from the time I was 24 to 35. So it was 11 years. And, uh, it, and that gave me, just like music had given me a lot of skills, having a business with really talented business partners gave me a lot of skills as well. So at the time, I had a friend who she did all the marketing for big companies like uh, FTD and Bowflex. And, and she said she had, I had done all the marketing for my retail store all the catalogs, all the internet stuff, everything. And she thought that I had a, a gift with design. And she said, um, you know, if you could learn Flash, Flash was a technology in, in the mid-2000s. If you say if you, so. If you say yeah, so. it was. Um, she it said, was. if you if you could learn Flash, you could. I would give you an advertising campaign for Bowflex and FTD, which that was a huge. To be able to do that would launch, would would have launched my business. But at the time, I didn't know anything about Flash, so I just intensive went to school you know basically and and still meeting by yourself yeah, in your yes for yeah. <laughs> literally 20 hours a day yeah. learning wow. and becoming good at flash because you have to be you can't just learn it. you have to be good at it if you're going to do a, a national campaign for a big company like Bowflex. and so i did and i did uh ads for them and it they turned out great and that was then i was able through that to have a portfolio and started getting clients locally, you know, because people knew I had already done websites, you know, I, I'd been working in web since 94 when it started. And at that time you could, 
look at the source code of any website and you could see exactly how it worked, which isn't the case anymore because there's so many different components to it. But I, I had done websites over the years for the, for the sporting goods stores, for friends who had businesses. So it was a very easy transition. Once I gained the skills, the Flash software, it was a very easy transition to really learning HTML and PHP and CSS and just started building my business that way kind of organically, but it grew, it grew fast. So just another opportunity, like you mentioned before, yeah. that was presented to you and, and you took obviously and full took advantage it. of it by yeah. putting yourself to school in, in your house and <laughs> um, becoming really good at it. So, and, and you stuck with it. It's something that you still do. What do you find is one of the biggest challenges that you face with owning your own business? It's hard to say. I, I, I think probably one of the biggest challenges that you think of from time to time is, is, you know, every person who contacts me, it's like a job application that, you know, it's like I'm putting in a job application to win their business. And they might've seen one of my sites or they might've read my reviews. And so I maybe have an, a little bit of an advantage, but it's, you know, it's not, you're not getting a steady paycheck. You're, you know, you're just getting job you know, taking on clients and getting jobs and I stay as busy as I want to be. You know, at this at this point, I've been doing it now for 15 years, and I I want to keep a balance in life and actually be able to take advantage of living in band. And Maybe that's the challenge. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Lisa can answer this question for me. Not playing all the time, but doing some work. It's <laughs> I know she's a much happier person when she, and the whole reason she wanted to have her own business, I think part of it is so that you could set your own schedule freedom. from home and yeah. have the freedom, whether it's your hours or your vacation. Yeah. I know you're a much happier person when you actually set aside time to go hiking or skiing right. or on a vacation I think instead of just head down work day after day after day. Right. And that's, that's a challenge because I'm actually the sort of person who, it's really easy for me to just sit in the office and work, like just work and not not take time out, you know, and I think that's, you know, whether you if you allow yourself to do that, there's reasons we don't allow ourselves. It's like productivity thing got to always be productive. And um, so I don't maybe allow myself enough time. And even when I have time, you know, I might feel guilty if I'm if it's a Wednesday and I'm out playing. So that's, that's a challenge. We yeah. get that. I mean, you guys know we work remote too, so we deal with the, you know, balance between hey, we got to spend time with our jobs and get our work done and do well with it, do a good job at it, but we also live in this very very beautiful place and we do have the freedom to go out and play on a Wednesday. So let's do right. that every once in a while too. Right. Well, thanks for sharing all of that, yeah. Laura. And it's really cool to hear more about your background and how you've gotten to where you are now. I will shift gears a bit and talk about Lisa and give Lisa a shot here. I'm very, very excited to hear more about your experience in the FBI. I actually could ask you a million questions about your experience being a D1 athlete, but I want to focus more on the career part for, for today. So we'll stick with that. But I wanted to ask what started that? Like one day, did you just wake up and decide that you wanted to be an FBI agent? Did you watch Silence of the Lambs and get inspired by Jodie Foster? Or like <laughs> what, what made you want to be an FBI agent? I don't know what year 
Silent of the Lambs came out. I don't know. 1991. I, I just looked 91. it up. 1991. Okay, there you go. So I wasn't. I did love that movie, and I did want to be just like Jodie Foster. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> like that like everyone it. else. But actually, it didn't occur to me at that time <clears throat> that I would actually do that. You know, I graduated from college in 1991. Um, I was working at Levi Strauss in San Francisco um, in their employment employee wellness program with my exercise physiology degree. And I did that for five or six years. And during that time, um, which was quite a bit after Silence of the Lambs, um, I kind of got wind that a friend of mine had a sister who was applying to the FBI. And it had never occurred to me until that moment. I mean, I, I always thought that yeah, seemed like a cool thing, but law enforcement or a law or FBI, federal employment, none of that had ever occurred to me. It's just in that moment, I think I was not super passionate about what I was doing and I was getting pretty bored with it pretty early on in my career and I remember just thinking wait a minute anybody can just apply to the FBI you know it, it seemed like such a far-fetched idea or something that was so far out there that it would never occur to me and so because this friend's sister had done it I thought well I could apply to the FBI so I did and I just sort of did I remember my parents and my sister and all my friends are kind of like, whatever, you know, I'm sure you're <laughs> going to be in the FBI. And I think I've maybe felt that too, but I kind of thought, what's the harm in trying, you know? And I think so many people stop at that point and think it's this far-fetched dream and don't try for something like a job like that. Um, and I literally just did it. I just applied and it's a long process to get in, but every step of the way, I kept passing the various stages and tests and was surprised every single time, but but getting more and more excited <laughs> about it, and ended up in and got the um, conditional letter of employment to go to Quantico and quit my job at Levi's and let, gave up my apartment in San Francisco and went and um, took the opportunity. Yeah, I always think about your dad when that stuff comes up, actually, because he was so big on that. I think it also speaks, if I can just say. Mm -hmm. Seeing somebody who does, especially with something like the FBI, just all you needed was to see somebody who had done it. Right. And once you see somebody who has done it, you see that it's possible. A real person. A real person. the movies, the actual real person. <laughs> right. You realize it's an atta attainable yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah. I think, except, I, yeah, I just, I just went for it and ended up getting in and I think it was the best, best thing I ever did. So yeah, from Levi's straight to Quantico, that's that's quite the change. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your parents because we just met them or spent more time with them a couple of weeks ago at that dinner party and, and got to know their personalities a little bit more. And so you mentioned them a little bit, but I am curious, like really what their reaction was when not only you said, hey, I'm going to apply to the FBI, but hey, I'm going off to Quantico now for the next however long. I don't know how long that you're in Quantico for. You know, it's interesting because I grew up with parents. My mom worked and had some really cool jobs, actually, especially for women. Um, my dad worked. Um, I think that I grew up with parents who made me feel like I could do anything, right? Like I never felt like there were any boundaries or any, any, there was nothing I couldn't do if that's what I wanted to do and I put my energy towards it. They made me feel like I could do anything, right? However, what's funny about that is when I, both when I got my volleyball scholarship, University of Florida, and when I went into the FBI, I think both times they were 
shocked. Like I think along the way, whether it was while being recruited for the volleyball scholarship um, or while applying for the FBI and making it through the stages, um, I think in the back of their minds, or at least they put out kind of to me like, like, oh, it's nice you're trying, honey, but, you know, this is pretty far-fetched <laughs> kind of thing, which is surprising because they made, again, made me biggest cheerleaders. They made me feel like I could do anything. But I think they were shocked in both both circumstances. I think they were elated, but I think they were really surprised. Um, but that said, they were huge cheerleaders for me all along the way. Um, but what was your initial question? I'm not even sure I answered it. <laughs> no, you did. My question was, what was your parents' reaction when, you know, not only you were telling them you were applying, but then you were heading off to Quantico, you know, was there, could you sense any, even like nervousness from them or anything like that or not really? I mean, knowing more about your mom, she also was a badass and worked for NASA and, and did stuff like that. So maybe mm -hmm. not, but... I think the, um, you know, carrying a firearm part of it, I think, made them nervous and and the potential for being in dangerous situations made them nervous. And I remember not thinking much about that. You know, while you're applying, they hammer into your head. You know, you do understand you're going to be carrying a gun and you could be in situations and this is what is expected of you. And I just remember going through it thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. Jodie Foster did it. I can do it. You know, the whole. <laughs> but it's funny because I remember when it came to it. I remember my mom and dad driving me to the airport um, to get on the plane to go to Quantico. I had been so like, not nonchalant, but excited about it and looking forward to it. And I remember in that moment when they dropped me off and I was going to get on the plane, I had a, practically a total breakdown. I remember like thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? You know, in, in that moment, it hit me that it could, I was, I think I was scared at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> for sure going somewhere where you don't know anybody you don't know what to expect um you know you wonder can i do it um you know they give you this conditional letter of employment and that's all based on if you pass everything that they threw at you at quantico you know if if you don't they send you home and you've given up your job your apartment your everything so i think <laughs> i had a bit of a freak out in that moment um but once i got there and and made friends and met my classmates and got into the groove of it um, it was just exciting. I mean, I really, it was exciting and it was such a neat challenge um, that I think I just went with it and I, I loved it. Um, well, I actually did want to ask another question kind of about your parents. So, because I feel like the more that I'm becoming an adult and having those relationships with my parents, I had a similar experience of you can do whatever, you know, you can do it. But then there's always that little bit of like, almost like they're preparing themselves maybe for if we don't make it so that they maybe. can help us. Right. And so yeah. it kind of feels like that's what maybe your parents were doing was like, just in case we have to be ready to support her in case it doesn't happen. Cause you kept shooting for the stars, which they taught you to do, but right. there's always, I'm sure those nerves. Right. And I think probably a lot of that for your parents and mine might be also that they don't want us they want us to be successful and maybe they're a little bit afraid of oh it's great she wants to do this but she'll be destroyed if she doesn't get in after putting this much energy they don't want us to feel bad i mean it might be a little mm. bit of that they don't want us to to experience disappointment and maybe they thought likely we would i don't know i don't know yeah that's a good question i feel like i had such good role models with my parents and um and talk about sports we all played sports um i think role models as far as strong female coaches um, in my life, I know, that made me feel 
A, challenged me, right? And made you realize you could be pushed to the brink and you're going to make it, you're going to get through it and just keep working through it. I think you learn a lot of lessons. You learn teamwork, you learn resilience. Um, I think all of that played a part in my feeling like I do these things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was Quantico, was Quantico one of the most difficult experiences you've ever had? Or was is that too extreme to, to say that? Um, It was difficult in that it was it was no it was more stressful than difficult because the thought of you know by the time you go there and all your family and friends know you're going there and everybody's rooting for you and you don't want to fail right and if you fail literally you're out the job you're home with you know pretty much starting over so i the stress i think came from knowing that i'd better pass and make this work right Um, because you can get kicked out of Quantico. I think my class started with 50 special agent candidates and ended up with, I don't know, 42. I think eight people failed out, whether that was from um, academic, you know, failing academic classes or um, firearms or physical fitness portion. You know, you can fail out of Quantico. Um, It's super intense. You know, it, it was... I was a little afraid. I've never been in the military and I was a little bit afraid it might be a sort of a really regimented militaristic experience. And it wasn't that at all. They very much treat everybody like professionals. You know, everybody's had a career at that point, right? Everybody that's applying for the job. And um, they do treat everyone with respect and very professionally. And they want you to pass, you know, with firearms. They're teaching you everything you need to know because they want you to pass. So, you know, with all the academic classes, they're they're teaching the curriculum so that you can learn it and pass it. So it's a very supportive environment. Um, and, and when you're there, you're out in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. You have nothing to do but study and work out and, <laughs> and pass, right? Um, I thought it was an incredible experience. I would highly recommend it, actually. How many women were in your class or like in general in the FBI? Yeah, there were 10 women in my 50 person class. And I think eight of us made it through the entire process um, and ended up with a job in the FBI. Um, How many women are in? I want to say it's only like 18% ish, 18 to 20%, they say. And I think they were saying that when I got in and I don't think it's gotten any better and they do try they they do a lot of work to uh hire a diverse group but it's still the majority of it is still um your average 30 year old white guy right I mean that's just the way it is um but it's gotten a lot better as far as diversity however not that much better as far as the number of women in the FBI and in fact we had friends over for dinner last night one of them was also an FBI agent she didn't spend her whole career in the FBI, but she got in in 1984, 82, or 82. Yeah. And they only started allowing women to be special agents after J. Edgar Hoover passed away because um, he wasn't having it. Um, but in 73, so she was part of that really early on group um, wow. of women that took on that challenge. And I feel like by the time I got in, it was normal to have women in the FBI. There still aren't, aren't enough women. Um, you know, at any given time on my squad of 10, I would have one, maybe one other woman on my squad at any given time. Um, but because of what she went through and what the women in that first 10, 20 years went through, um, it actually was a relatively 
easy thing for me being a woman in the FBI, I would say. I didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago as well, but you mentioned, you know, when 9-11 happened, you were, you know, on a plane to New York right away to, to be a part of the, you know, helping in that situation. Obviously, 9-11 being one of, if not the worst thing that's ever happened to this country. And and so I, I don't necessarily have a direct question other than what yeah. was that experience well, I feel like. lucky because I, I remember when it happened, um, we all wanted to be there. You know, I was out in San Francisco at the time and clear across the country. And we all, all of us in the FBI and probably most of us in general, felt helpless. Like you wanted to do something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they did pick a team of eight from each division's evidence response team to go out. And, you know, some people went right away. We actually went out in November. So it happened September, right? Um, they started rotating teams through. We went out in November um, and they kept sending teams through for, my gosh, I think it was, could have been two years before all the debris had been processed for evidentiary reasons. Um, but I remember feeling really lucky that I was able to go do something and actually be part of it. Um, so yeah, they sent us out there and we paired up with other teams from around the, around the country. I think we were paired up with um, New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama, and we were assigned to the Staten Island landfill. And what they were doing at that time is there were thousands of law enforcement agencies out there, local, state, federal, right, processing because there was so much debris at Ground Zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we were assigned to in particular is they were putting the... Um, debris from the buildings from ground zero on barges and taking them over to the Staten Island landfill and which is called the Fresh Kills landfill, which I've always kind of hated the name of that place. I'm not sure why it's named that. Mm-hmm. Um, brought it over there. And then we were essentially sorting through, sifting through debris from the World Trade Center and pulling out anything that could identify a victim, um, whether it was teeth, bones, driver's license, um, anything that could identify somebody, right? Um, and so that's what we did. We were working the night shift and we were there for 12 to 14 hours, sifting, sifting, sifting. Um, and while that happened, the second week we were there, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was also a case going on called Amerithrax, which was the anthrax scares that were happening through the U.S. Postal Service, New Jersey, New York. Mm-hmm. That was happening simultaneously during this time. And our second period there, we were supposed to be shifted over to work that part of the investigation. But while we were there, a plane crashed in the Rockaways. It sounds really convoluted. But a plane crashed, and they, they thought it was terrorist-related. It ended up it wasn't, but they thought it was. And so my team was diverted to the Bellevue Hospital morgue, where we were then going through the 260 bodies taken from that plane to to swab them for explosive residue and look for signs of a terrorist attack so it was it was a harrowing time for sure in my career you know i worked a lot of different crime scenes and and across the board but that definitely stands out as the most significant thing it was a really interesting time to be in new york um especially as law enforcement because the world i mean i don't know how where were you guys during that time? How old were you during that time? I was uh, headed off to second grade. So yeah, we were. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. So different perspective, but the whole, if you can just imagine the entire world came to a halt, it was the biggest thing that had ever happened. And hopefully the biggest thing that ever happens on American soil, if we're lucky, but the whole country, it it was kind of the opposite of the way things seemed in the past few years. The whole country came together. It was like, Mm -hmm. there, there was never a more patriotic time that certainly that I know of, probably during World War One or two or something like that, where everybody's focus was on what's best for the country, how can we get past this, Um, working together. It felt like a really unified time in the country. Um, But being over there during that time, the way we were treated, they were so happy we were there and so happy we were helping. And it was just such an uplifting time to be in law enforcement, where these days it's not such an uplifting time to be in law enforcement. Um, That was the complete opposite. It was it was special to be there during that time. Sad it was for mm-hmm. such a bad reason, but yeah. Yeah, I said second grade, but it was actually fifth grade. But okay, know, r- regardless, <laughs> regardless. Oh yeah, I mean, well, I'm so sure you remember that... it, of course. Yeah, I remember oh. what I was wearing. I remember yeah. like coming into yeah. my mom's bedroom, you know, and she's just watching the TV. Like, yes, yeah, so my dad know. was. Yeah, my dad was actually in San Francisco, about to fly to Florida, and like about to get on a flight across the country, and they were like, "Go home," yeah. you know, and he yep. rented a car and drove home. But yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure that experience that you have is something that you'll never forget. And and like you said, I mean, you were an FBI agent, FBI agent for many years, but that experience alone probably really stands out, you know, to oh, for you sure. within your yeah. career. Yeah. yeah. Well, to shift gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about the both of you. And, you know, we've now talked about both of your careers and, and you've both done a lot. And... You know, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about how you guys have balanced that together. And, you know, it seems like you guys have a really awesome relationship, really healthy relationship. It's one that, you know, is a role model for us, like I said at the beginning of the podcast. And what you have found as either challenges or as something that that is helpful in supporting each other in your guys' careers you know, and, and some of the changes that you've made and maybe even some of the moves that you've made as well. You know, what have you found hard and what have you found that is helpful? It's funny because we don't really think about it very much, but I mean, you made the biggest shift because you retired early. Well, I would say big. you made an equally big shift. You know, Laura was from a really <laughs> small town. I mean, Murphy's where she's from was 3,000 people, right? She was very, very happy being in Murphy. She lived on 40 acres. She had... um good work. She had so many friends and family. And when we met, because of my career, we had to live in the city, right? I mean, you know, we lived in the suburbs of San Francisco, but to Laura, that it felt like enough. the big city, right? <laughs> um, that was a big deal. You left everything, I think, to move. It's just three hours away, but it's a world of difference between the two places. So she basically dropped everything and, and moved to Livermore and so that I could keep my career going. And I remember at that time telling her that someday we'll be able to move back out to the mountains or move back out, out of the city and live in a, a more, I don't know, beautiful, peaceful place with less people. So I had her sign that. You didn't actually. <laughs> you didn't I actually. Held, I just held you to your word. But I remember telling her, you know, when I'm 50, I, I could retire and we can live wherever we want. And, um, and and actually, honestly, as we, I, I came to really enjoy where we lived in the Bay Area. And as I, you, my, I established my business more in the Bay Area and we had an incredible community there too, that 
thought became further away. I wasn't thinking, when are we going to move back to Murphy's or uh, that I, I really didn't think about that until we took a road trip up to Bend. And then it was like, okay, we, this is the spot. Yeah. And, and fortunately, Lisa felt exactly the same way. I mean, we literally stood on at Mirror Pond and we all said, oh, I could live here easily. And we just started thinking, how could we make it happen? And at that point, we were about five years away from Lisa being able to retire. And so that came into play uh, because I don't think there's any other reason you would have retired. Oh, no. We wouldn't yeah. have retired and moved back. Yeah, they, they let you work as a special agent through 57. For some reason, at 57, they decide you're no longer able to do that job, which is ridiculous, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> um, but we knew at 50, we'd have the opportunity to go wherever we wanted to and wouldn't have to take my job into consideration. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's worked because we've just worked together kind of to, to make it work. I mean, you know, it, things have changed a lot. When I was working full time, I was gone all day, every day, and I was traveling a lot. And Laura got to work from home by herself in her quiet little oasis. So it rocked <laughs> her world considerably when I did retire. But I have to say that the, the only reason is because I have this thing when I work, I have to be working in complete silence. I can't have music on. I just am in my office completely focused. And I was used to working in... Um, a land of cubicles with my squad mates all around me talking over the cubicles and talking on the phone and collaborating. And that's oh, yeah. how I really um, like to work. So it's hard for me to understand that. However, you're going around. Yeah. I, I get <laughs> I, that I, honestly, at first it was a little challenging because it was just the sound of somebody else being in the house and talking to the dogs and then coming into the office and saying, Hey, <laughs> Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? Like, stop not going. okay for her. This is, it just, yeah, for some reason. I, yeah. We've learned to yeah. work that out. But I think yeah. over the years, we've kind of just worked it out. I mean, I, I don't feel like anything's been one-sided necessarily. I think I'm lucky that you adapted and ended up liking living in the suburbs. And in the, we could have had a real problem. Uh, yeah, I think you grow where you're planted. That, you not know, everyone can. Yeah. But there's good yeah. in every in every place. I don't care if you dropped... You, you drop me in the middle of New York City. You know, you you there. There's beautiful things every single place in this world. So it's pretty easy. To but I think it's your, probably your ability to see that that helped us get through that time because sure. there are people For who sure. have done that. Right? Yeah. True. Yeah. And and Laura, you it sounds like you knowing that you know maybe at some point you guys were going to mm-hmm. move somewhere maybe a little bit smaller, a little bit quieter, a little bit more yeah. in nature allowed you then to be like, okay, well. I'll totally embrace where I'm at now because I that, I know that that's coming. Yeah. That's true, and even even in the course of that, my stopping longing for that because I was I was growing and flourishing in this new community, which I never thought I would, you know, live in the suburbs and, and love it. But I actually really did. I it was it was great. So. We are going to kind of wrap up here, but before we do, I've been ending every episode where I have a guest on with a rapid fire round. Basically, this is five questions that I'm going to throw at you. And the goal is for you guys to answer and you guys can each give your individual answer in one word to one sentence is the goal. If it's a little bit more than that, that's okay. But, but that's the goal. So I have five questions and are you up for it? Are you ready? Okay. 
<laughs> this feels like all of a sudden it's like trickle. Game on. Should we stretch? Okay, you guys, for the record, when Christina asked me these for at least two of them, I was like, oh my God, for like a minute, minute and a half. So again, we can edit anything. It's fine. Okay, Okay, good. Okay. Yep. (laughs) And whoever has their answer first can can answer first. So question number one is what is something new happening in your life right now? Mm. (laughs) Well, we uh, just purchased a travel trailer mm. and it's something that we oh and you only want one sentence travel trailer <laughs> horses i'm going with i'm with horses <laughs> oh my god that was funny okay that was perfect uh number two what is something in your routine that you do not like doing but you have to do mm. shoveling the driveway recently Oh, I, yeah. Laura, you're such a happy, positive person. You're like, I like everything that I do. I, so. You know, well, it, it, not just necessarily. Just wait until it's the middle of her work day and you throw up something like, hey, do you think you might want to take the dogs for a walk? It's like, no, I don't want to take the dogs That's for a walk. That's her, too. That's her, too. Could, could there be but, anything better than taking the dogs for a and walk? And then, then know, you what? have Miss Positive, and she's always, she uses that, like, it would do your soul good to get away from that desk. Oh my God, Lisa, just leave me alone. I, I am you. But then every time we do get out of the house and we're out on a walk, Cora's like, oh, this thank is amazing. You. Thank yeah. you thank for you. suggesting I needed it. this. No, yes. I'm literally attached to the couch. Like I have grown into the couch when every time Christina's like, let's go on a walk. I'm like, I can't. I literally can't. <laughs> Okay, Laura, maybe your answer is dog walks then. <laughs> right. Now, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would, I would say um, that I would love work, you know. Well, no, I can't really say that work is something I don't want to do because I enjoy it. So, no, I pass. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Number three, what is something that you're grateful for right now? Hmm. Everything. I'm grateful for everything. Every morning that I wake up and I look out and I'm grateful for my family, which is Lisa and our doodles, I'm, I'm grateful for everything. I, I'm, I feel like I'm at one of the best places that I've ever been. And I've always been in a good place in life. So that's I well, like. I think to have all that intact in and to have it here in Bend, Oregon, I'm grateful for that. Yes, us too. Okay, number four, what does success look like to you? When I hear of success, I don't think of it as like career success or fiscal success or anything like that. I, success for me is feeling peaceful and balanced and uh, not stressed out in any way. That's success. If you can actually exist in the world and have that, have no stress, that's success for me. No, no, no. I think to be, if you're happy, if you're content with what you have got and are not constantly seeking other things, I think that feels like success. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, and then last one, then you guys are off the hook, is what is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Don't worry so much. I like things, that one. Things, things turn out the way they're supposed to. Just go for it and do your best and don't worry so much. Boy, I would ha- I would have a lot for my younger self because I don't think I actually really started figuring myself out until my mid thirties. So, uh, just keep looking for opportunities and and take 
every opportunity. And that's what I've done. But I, I think I, uh, I think I would have heard that as a young, as a young person. Well, I want to say thank you to both you so much for being on the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast. I really appreciate it. Obviously, we're friends and normally hanging out in a lot less uh, maybe stressful situations than recording a <laughs> podcast episode. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to to do this. And, and you too, Cora, thank you for being on another episode. I'm probably going to rope you into many more. So okay, just prepare yourself. <laughs> but yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you for having thank me. That was fun. Of course. So changing your path will not be easy. It will be challenging. I'll say that over and over again, but it will be worth it. So I ask that you do a self-check today. Are you on your path of your mountain? And if not, what path are you on? 